Thanks for listening tonight. If you'd like to listen ad-free and get access to exclusive bonus episodes, then check out the Sleepy Bookshelf premium feed in the show notes. Good evening, and welcome to the Sleepy Bookshelf, where we put down our worries from the day and pick up a good book. I'm your host, Elizabeth. It's a pleasure to be with you tonight. This evening, we're continuing with The Enchanted April. But before we do, let's take some time to put our day behind us. Imagine you are relaxing at San Salvatore, the medieval castle from our story. Close your eyes and place yourself in any spot that has captured your imagination in this book so far. Perhaps you are sitting in the garden by the low stone wall overlooking the ocean or wandering down the winding footpath under the wisteria. Wherever you are in your mind, look around you. What can you see? Take a deep breath in. What can you smell? And when you exhale, come to a stillness. What can you hear? Stay where you are in your mind now, becoming more peaceful and relaxed as I recap our last episode. Previously, Lottie, Mrs. Wilkins, and Rose, Mrs. Arbuthnot, were taken into the breakfast room by the housekeeper. To their surprise, they were met by Mrs. Fisher sat at the head of the table, Lottie was disappointed they wouldn't have a chance to welcome the older lady as they had expected. Mrs. Fisher was suspicious of Lottie and decided to direct most of her conversation to Rose. Rose was increasingly irritated by the way Mrs. Fisher was acting the hostess. They were all guests, but if it was anyone's role to be mistress of the castle... It would either be her or Lottie, given that they had found the place. For instance, in arriving early, Mrs. Fisher had taken the best room, and Lady Caroline, the second best. They had both asked for the second beds in their rooms to be removed, which is why Lottie and Rose had two in their relatively small spaces. Lottie, on the other hand, refused to let anything get on her nerves. She considered the castle to be a perfect heaven, and no one could mind about anything in heaven. She and Rose went for a walk down to the beach, and while they were out, Lady Caroline was asked by the cook to place the food order for lunch and dinner. 
as she spoke the best Italian. And that is where we pick up tonight. Lady Caroline refusing to give any more orders to the staff at San Salvatore. So, just lie back and relax as I turn to the next pages of The Enchanted April. Chapter 8 continued. The idea that she would go on giving orders was too absurd. She never gave orders at home. Nobody there dreamed of asking her to do anything. That such a very tiresome activity should be thrust upon her here, simply because she happened to be able to talk Italian, was ridiculous. Let the originals give orders if Mrs. Fisher refused to. Mrs. Fisher, of course, was the one nature intended for such a purpose. She had the very air of a competent housekeeper. Her clothes were the clothes of a housekeeper, and so was the way she did her hair. Having delivered herself of her ultimatum with an acerbity that turned sweet on the way, and accompanied it, by a peremptory gesture of dismissal that had the grace and loving kindness of benediction. It was annoying that Constanza should only stand still with her head on one side, gazing at her in obvious delight. Oh, go away, exclaimed Lady Caroline in English, suddenly exasperated. There had been a fly in her bedroom that morning, which had stuck just as Constanza was sticking. Only one, but it might have been a myriad it was so tiresome from daylight on. It was determined to settle on her face, and she was determined it should not. Its persistence was uncanny. It woke her and would not let her go to sleep again. She hit at it. She hit at it, and it eluded her without fuss or effort, and with an almost visible blandness, and she had only hit herself. It came back again instantly, and with a loud buzz, alighted on her cheek. She hit at it again and hurt herself, while it skimmed gracefully away. She lost her temper and sat up in bed and waited, watching to hit at it and kill it. She kept on hitting at it at last, with fury and with all her strength, as if it were a real enemy, deliberately trying to madden her. And it elegantly skimmed in and out of her blows, not even angry, to be back again the next instant. It succeeded, every time in getting onto her face and was quite indifferent how often it was driven away. 
that was why she had dressed and come out so early. Francesca had already been told to put a net over her bed. She was not going to allow herself to be annoyed twice like that. People were exactly like flies. She wished there were nets for keeping them off too. She hit at them with words and frowns, and like the fly, they slipped between her blows and were untouched. Worse than the fly, they seemed unaware that she had even tried to hit them. The fly, at least for a moment, did go away. With human beings, the only way to get rid of them was to go away herself. That was what, so tired, she had done this April. And having got there, having got close up to the details of life at San Salvatore, it appeared that here, too, she was not to be let alone. Viewed from London, there had seemed to be no details. San Salvatore, from there, seemed to be an empty, delicious blank. Yet after only 24 hours of it, she was discovering that it was not a blank at all, that she was having to ward off as actively as ever. Already, she had been much stuck to. Mrs. Fisher had stuck nearly the whole of the day before, and this morning there had been no peace, not ten minutes uninterruptedly alone. Constanza, of course, had finally had to go because she had to cook, but hardly had she gone before Domenico came. He came to water and tie up. That was natural since he was the gardener, but he watered and tied up all the things that were nearest to her. He hovered closer and closer. He watered to excess. He tied plants that were as straight and steady as arrows. Well, at least he was a man and therefore not quite so annoying. And his smiling, good morning was received with an answering smile, upon which Domenico forgot his family, his wife, his mother, his grown-up children and all his duties, and only wanted to kiss the young lady's feet. He could not do that, unfortunately, but he could talk while he worked, and talk he did voluminously, pouring out every kind of information, illustrating what he said with gestures so lively that he had to put down the watering pot and thus delay the end of the watering. Lady Caroline bore it for a time, but presently was unable to hear it, and as he would not go, and she could not tell him to, seeing that he was engaged in his proper work, Once again, it was she who had to. She got off the wall and moved to the other side of the garden, where in a wooden shed were some comfortable, low cane chairs. All she wanted to do was turn one of these around with its back to Domenico and its front to the sea towards Genoa. Such a little thing to want. One would have thought she might have been allowed to do that unmolested. But he, who watched her every movement, when he saw her approaching the chairs, 
darted after her and seized one and asked to be told where to put it. Would she never get away from being waited on, being made comfortable, being asked where she wanted things put, having to say thank you? She was short with Domenico, who instantly concluded the sun had given her a headache and ran in and fetched her a sunshade and a cushion and a footstool and was skillful and was wonderful and was one of nature's gentlemen. She shut her eyes in a heavy resignation. She could not be unkind to Domenico. She could not get up and walk inside as if it had been one of the others. Domenico was intelligent and very competent. She had at once discovered that it was he who really ran the house, who really did everything, and his manners were definitely delightful, and he undoubtedly was a charming person. It was only that she did so much long to be let alone. If only... Only she could be left quite quiet for this one month. She felt that she might perhaps make something of herself after all. She kept her eyes shut because then he would think she wanted to sleep and would go away. Domenico's romantic Italian soul melted within him at the sight. For having her eyes shut was extraordinarily becoming to her. He stood entranced, quite still, and she thought he had stolen away, so she opened them again. Nope, there he was, staring at her. Even he. There was no getting away from being stared at. I have a headache, she said, shutting them again. Tis this son, said Domenico and is sitting on the wall without a hat. I wish to sleep. Si, signora, he said sympathetically, and went softly away. She opened her eyes with a sigh of relief. The gentle closing of the glass doors showed her that he had not only gone quite away, but had shut her out in the garden so that she should be undisturbed. Now, perhaps, she would be alone till lunchtime. It was very curious, and no one in the world could have been more surprised than she herself. But she wanted to think. She had never wanted to do that before. Everything else that is possible to do without too much inconvenience, she had either wanted to do or had done at one period or another of her life but not before had she wanted to think. She had come to San Salvatore with the single intention of lying, comatose for four weeks in the sun, somewhere where her parents and friends were not, lapped in forgetfulness, stirring herself only to be fed. And she had not been there more than a few hours when this strange new desire took hold of her. There had been wonderful stars the evening before, and she had gone out into the top garden after dinner, leaving Mrs. Fisher alone over her nuts and wine, and sitting on the wall, 
the place where the lilies crowded their ghost heads. She had looked out into the gulf of the night, but it suddenly seemed as if her life had been a noise all about nothing. She had been intensely surprised. She knew stars and darkness did produce unusual emotions because in others she had seen them being produced, but they had not before done it in herself. A noise all about nothing. Could she be quite well? She had wondered. For a long while past, she had been aware that her life was a noise, but it seemed to be very much about something. A noise, indeed, about so much that she felt she must get out of earshot for a little, or she would be completely and perhaps permanently deafened. But suppose it was only a noise about nothing. She had not had a question like that in her mind before. It had made her feel lonely. She wanted to be alone, but not lonely. That was very different. That was something that ached and hurt dreadfully right inside one. It was what one dreaded most. It was what made one go to so many parties. And lately, even the parties had seemed once or twice not to be a perfectly certain protection. Was it possible that loneliness had nothing to do with circumstances, but only with the way one met them? Perhaps she had thought she had better go to bed. She couldn't be very well. She went to bed, and in the morning, after she had escaped the fly and had her breakfast and got out again into the garden, there was this same feeling again, and in broad daylight. Once more, she had that really rather disgusting suspicion that her life till now had not only been loud, but empty. Well, if it were so, and if her first 28 years, the best ones, had gone just in meaningless noise, she'd better stop a moment and look round her, pause, as they said in tiresome novels, and consider. She hadn't got many sets of 28 years. One more would see her growing very like Mrs. Fisher. Two more. She averted her eyes. Her mother would have been concerned if she had known. Her mother doted. Her father would have been concerned too, for he also doted. Everybody doted. And when, melodiously obstinate, she had insisted on going off to entomb herself in Italy for a whole month with queer people she had got out of an advertisement, refusing even to take her maid, the only explanation her friends could imagine was that poor Scrap, such was her name among them, had overdone it and was feeling a little nervy. Her mother had been distressed at her departure. Such an odd thing to do. Such a sign of disappointment. She encouraged the general idea of the verge of a nervous breakdown. She could have seen her adored Scrap 
more delightful to look upon than any other mother's daughter had ever yet been, the object of her utmost pride, the source of all her fondest hopes, sitting, staring at the empty noonday Mediterranean, considering her three possible sets of twenty-eight years, she would have been miserable. To go away alone was bad, to think was worse. No good could come out of thinking of a beautiful young woman. Complications could come out of it in profusion, but no good end. The thinking of the beautiful was bound to result in hesitations, in reluctances, in unhappiness all round. And here, she could have seen her, sat her scrap thinking quite hard. And such things, such odd things, things nobody ever began to think till they were at least forty. Chapter 9 That one of the two sitting rooms which Mrs. Fisher had taken for her own was a room of charm and character. She surveyed it with satisfaction on going into it after breakfast and was glad it was hers. It had a tiled floor and walls the colour of pale honey and inlaid furniture the colour of amber and mellow books, many in ivory or lemon-coloured covers. There was a big window overlooking the sea towards Genoa, and a glass door through which she could proceed out onto the battlements and walk along past the quaint and attractive watchtower. In itself, a room with chairs and a writing table, to where on the other side of the tower, the battlements ended in a marble seat and one could see the western bay and the point round which began the Gulf of Spezia. Her south view between these two stretches of sea was another hill, higher than San Salvatore, the last of the little peninsula with the bland turrets of a smaller and uninhabited castle on the top, on which the setting sun still shone when everything else was sunk in shadow. Yes, she was very comfortably established here, and receptacles, Mrs. Fisher did not examine their nature closely, but they seemed to be small stone troughs, or perhaps little sarcophagi, ringed round the battlements with flowers. These battlements, she thought, considering them, would have been a perfect place for her to pace up and down, gently in moments when she least felt the need of her stick, or to sit in on the marble seat, having first put a cushion on it, if there had not unfortunately been a second glass door opening onto them, destroying their complete privacy spoiling her feeling that the place was only for her. The second door belonged to the round drawing room, which both she and Lady Caroline had rejected as too dark. That room would probably be sat in by the women from Hampstead, 
She was afraid they would not confine themselves to sitting in it, but would come out through the glass door and invade her battlements. This would ruin the battlements. It would ruin them as far as she was concerned if they were to be overrun, or even if, not actually overrun, they were liable to be raked by the eyes of persons inside the room. No one could be perfectly at ease if they were being watched and knew it. What she wanted, what she surely had a right to, was privacy. She had no wish to intrude on the others. Why then should they intrude on her? And she could always relax her privacy if, when she became better acquainted with her companions, she should think it worthwhile but she doubted whether any of the three would so develop as to make her think it worthwhile. Hardly anything was really worthwhile, reflected Mrs. Fisher, except the past. It was astonishing. It was simply amazing, the superiority of the past to the present. Those friends of her in London, solid persons of her own age, knew the same past that she knew, could talk about it with her, could compare it as she did with the tinkling present. And in remembering great men, forget for a moment the trivial and barren young people who still, in spite of the war, seemed to litter the world in such numbers. She had not come away from these friends, this conversable, ripe friends, in order to spend her time in Italy chatting with three persons of another generation and defective experience. She had come away merely to avoid the treacheries of a London April. It was true what she had told the two who came to Prince of Wales Terrace, that all she wished to do at San Salvatore was to sit by herself in the sun and remember. They knew this, for she had told them. It had been plainly expressed and clearly understood. Therefore, she had a right to expect them to stay inside the round drawing room and not to emerge interruptingly onto her battlements. But would they? The doubt spoilt her mourning. It was only towards lunchtime that she saw a way to be quite safe, and ringing for Francesca, bade her, in slow and majestic Italian, shut the shutters of the glass door of the round drawing room, and then, going with her into the room, which had become darker than ever in consequence, but also, Mrs. Fisher observed to Francesca, who is being voluble, would, because of this very darkness, remain agreeably cool. And after all, there were the numerous slit windows in the walls to let in light, and it was nothing to do with her if they did not let it in. She directed the placing of a cabinet of curious across the door on its inside. This would discourage Egress. Then she rang for Domenico and caused him to move one of the flower-filled sarcophagi across the door on its outside. This would discourage ingress. 
No one, said Domenico, hesitating, will be able to use the door. No one, said Mrs. Fisher firmly, will wish to. She then retired to her sitting room, and from a chair placed where she could look straight onto them, gazed at her battlements, secured to her now completely with calm pleasure. Being here, she reflected placidly, was much cheaper than being in a hotel, and if she could keep off the others, immeasurably more agreeable. She was paying for her rooms, extremely pleasant rooms, now that she was arranged in them, three pounds a week, which came to about eight shillings a day. Battlements, watchtower and all. Where else abroad could she live as well for so little and have as many baths as she liked for eight shillings a day? Of course, she did not know yet what her food would cost, but she would insist on carefulness over that. Though she would also insist on its being carefulness combined with excellence. The two were perfectly compatible if the caretaker took pains. The servant's wages she had ascertained were negligible, owing to the advantageous exchange, so that there was only the food to cause her anxiety. If she saw signs of extravagance, she would propose that they each hand over a reasonable sum every week to Lady Caroline, which should cover the bills, any of it that was not used to be returned, and if it were exceeded, the loss to be borne by the caterer. Mrs. Fisher was well off and had the desire for comforts proper to her age, but she disliked expenses. So well off was she that had she so chosen, she could have lived in an opulent part of London and driven from it and to it in a Rolls Royce. She had no such wish. It needed more vitality than went with true comfort to deal with a house in an opulent spot and a Rolls Royce. Worries attended such possessions. Worries of every kind, crowned by bills. In the sober gloom of Prince of Wales Terrace, she could obscurely enjoy inexpensive, yet real comfort, without being snatched at by predatory men-servants or collectors for charities, and a taxi stand was at the end of the road. Her annual outlay was small. The house was inherited. Death had furnished it for her. She trod in the dining room on the Turkish carpet of her father's. She regulated her day by the excellent black marble clock on the mantelpiece, which she remembered from childhood. Her walls were entirely covered by photographs her illustrious deceased friends had given either herself or her father, with their own handwriting across the lower parts of their bodies. And the windows, shrouded by the maroon curtains of all her life, were decorated besides with the self-same aquariums to which she owed her first lessons in sea law, and which still swam slowly the goldfishes of her youth 
were they the same goldfish? She did not know. Perhaps like carp, they outlived everybody. Perhaps, on the other hand, behind the deep-sea vegetation provided for them at the bottom, they had, from time to time as the years went by, withdrawn and replaced themselves. Were they or were they not, she sometimes wondered, contemplating them between the courses of her solitary means, the same goldfish that had that day been there when Carlyle, how well she remembered it, angrily strode up to them in the middle of some argument with her father that had grown heated and, striking the glass smartly with his fist, had put them to flight shouting as they fled, Och, ye deaf devils! Och, ye lucky deaf devils! Ye cannot hear anything of the blasted, blethering, doddering fool stuff your master talks, can ye? Or words to that effect. Dear great-souled Carlyle, such natural gushings forth, such true freshness, such real grandeur. Rugged, if you will. Yes, undoubtedly sometimes rugged and startling in a drawing room, but magnificent. Who was there now to put beside him? Who was there to mention in the same breath? Her father, than whom no one had more flair, said, Thomas is immortal. And here was this generation, this generation of puniness, raising its little voice in doubts, or still worse, not giving itself the trouble to raise it at all. Not, it was incredible, but it had been thus reported to her, even reading him. Mrs. Fisher did not read him either, but that was different. She had read him. She had certainly read him. Of course she had read him. There was Tufelstroke. She quite well remembered the tailor called Tufelstroke. So like Carlyle to call him that. Yes, she must have read him, though naturally details escaped her. The gong sounded. Lost in reminiscence, Mrs. Fisher had forgotten time and hastened to her bedroom to wash her hands and smooth her hair. She did not wish to be late and set a bad example and perhaps find her seat at the head of the table taken. One could put no trust in the manners of the younger generation, especially not in those of that Mrs. Wilkins. She was, however, the first to arrive in the dining room. Francesca, in a white apron, stood ready with an enormous dish of smoking hot, glistening macaroni. But nobody was there to eat it. Mrs. Fisher sat down, looking stern. Lax. Lax. Serve me, she said to Francesca who showed a disposition to wait for the others. Francesca served her. 
of the party, she liked Mrs. Fisher least. In fact, she did not like her at all. She was the only one of the four ladies who had not yet smiled. True, she was old. True, she was unbeautiful. True, she therefore had no reason to smile. But kind ladies smiled, reason or no. They smiled not because they were happy, but because they wished to make happy. This one of the four ladies could not then, Francesca decided, be kind. So she handed her the macaroni, being unable to hide any of her feelings morosely. It was very well cooked, but Mrs. Fisher had never cared for macaroni, especially not this long, worm-shaped variety. She found it difficult to eat, slippery, wriggling off her fork, making her look, she felt, undignified, when having got it, as she supposed, into her mouth, ends of it yet hung out. Always, too, when she ate it, she was reminded of Mr. Fisher. He had, during their married life, behaved very much like macaroni. He had slipped. He had wriggled. He had made her feel undignified. And when at last she had got him safe, as she thought, there had invariably been little bits of him that still, as it were, hung out. Francesca, from the sideboard, watched Mrs. Fisher's way with macaroni gloomily, and her gloom deepened when she saw her at last take her knife to it and chop it small. Mrs. Fisher really did not know how else to get hold of the stuff. She was aware that knives in this connection were improper, but one did finally lose patience. Macaroni was never allowed to appear on her table in London. Apart from its tiresomeness, she did not even like it, and she would tell Lady Caroline not to order it again. Years of practice reflected Mrs. Fisher, chopping it up. Years of actual living in Italy would be necessary to learn the exact trick. Browning managed macaroni wonderfully. She remembered watching him one day when he came to lunch with her father, and a dish of it had been ordered as a compliment to his connection with Italy. Fascinating the way it went in. No chasing round the plate. No slidings off the fork. No subsequent protrusions of loose ends. Just one dig, one whisk, one thrust, one gulp. And no... Yet another poet had been nourished. Shall I go and seek the younger lady? Asked Francesca, unable any longer to look on a good macaroni being cut with a knife. Mrs. Fisher came out of her reminiscent reflections with difficulty. She knows lunch is at half past twelve, she said. They all know. She may be asleep, said Francesca. The other ladies are further away, but this one is not far away. Beat the gong again, then, said Mrs. Fisher. 
What manners, she thought. What, what manners? It was not a hotel, and considerations were due. She must say she was surprised at Mrs. Arbuthnot, who had not looked like somebody unpunctual. Lady Caroline, too. She had seemed amiable and courteous, whatever else she might be. From the other one, of course, she expected nothing. Francesca fetched the gong and took it out into the garden and advanced, beating it as she advanced close up to Lady Caroline, who, still stretched in her low chair, waited till she had done, and then turned her head and in the sweetest tones poured forth what appeared to be music, but was really invective. Francesca did not recognize the liquid flow as invective. How was she to when it came out sounding like that? And with her face all smiles, for she could not but smile when she looked at this young lady, she told her the macaroni was getting cold. When I do not come to meals, it is because I do not wish to come to meals, said the irritated scrap. And you will not in future disturb me. Is she ill? asked Francesca, sympathetic but unable to stop smiling. Never, never had she seen hair so beautiful. Like pure flax, like the hair of northern babes. On such a little head, only blessing could rest. On such a little head, the nimbus of the holiest saints could fitly be placed. Scrap shut her eyes and refused to answer. In this, she was injudicious, for its effect was to convince Francesca, who hurried away full of concern, to tell Mrs. Fisher that she was indisposed. And Mrs. Fisher, being prevented, she explained, from going out to Lady Caroline herself because of her stick, sent the two others instead, who had come in at that moment, heated and breathless and full of excuses, while she herself proceeded to the next cause, which was a very well-made omelette, bursting most agreeably at both its ends with young green peas. Serve me, she directed Francesca who again showed a disposition to wait for the others. Why won't they leave me alone? Why won't they leave me alone? Scrap asked herself when she heard more scrunchings on the little pebbles, which took the place of grass, and therefore knew someone else was approaching. She kept her eyes tight shut this time. Why should she go into lunch if she didn't want to? This wasn't a private house. She was in no way tangled up in duties towards a tiresome hostess. For all practical purposes, San Salvatore was a hotel, and she ought to be let alone to eat or not to eat, exactly as if she really had been in a hotel. But the poor, unfortunate scrap could not just sit still and close her eyes without rousing that desire to stroke and pet in her beholders with which she was only too familiar. Even the cook had patted her 
and now a gentle hand. How well she knew, and how much she dreaded gentle hands, was placed on her forehead. I'm afraid you are not well, said a voice that was not Mrs. Fisher's, and therefore must belong to one of the originals. I have a headache, murmured Scrap. Perhaps it was best to say that. Perhaps it was the shortest cut to peace. I'm so sorry, said Mrs. Arbuthnot softly, for it was her hand being gentle. And I, said Scrap to herself, who thought if I came here I would escape mothers? Don't you think that some tea would do you good? asked Mrs. Arbuthnot tenderly. Tea? The idea was abhorrent to Scrap. In this heat, to be drinking tea in the middle of the day. No, she murmured. I really expect what would be best for her, said another voice, is to be left quiet. How sensible, thought Scrap, and raised the eyelashes of just one eye enough to peep through and see who was speaking. It was the freckled original. The dark one, then, was the one with the hand. The freckled one rose in her esteem. But I can't bear to think of you with a headache and nothing being done for it, said Mrs. Arbuthnot. What a cup of strong black coffee. Scrap said no more. She waited, motionless and dumb, till Mrs. Arbuthnot should remove her hand. After all, she couldn't stand there all day. And when she went away, she would have to take her hand with her. I do think, said the freckled one, that she wants nothing except quiet. And perhaps the freckled one pulled the other one with the hand by the sleeve, for the hold on Scrap's forehead relaxed. And after a minute's silence, during which no doubt she was being contemplated, she was always being contemplated, the footsteps began to scrunch the pebbles again and grew fainter and were gone. Lady Caroline has a headache, said Mrs. Arbuthnot, re-entering the dining room and sitting down in her place next to Mrs. Fisher. I can't persuade her to have even a little tea or some black coffee. Do you know what aspirin is in Italian? proper remedy for headaches, said Mrs. Fisher firmly, is castor oil. But she hasn't got a headache, said Mrs. Wilkins. Carlyle, said Mrs. Fisher, who had finished her omelette and had leisure while she waited for the next cause to talk. Suffered at one period terribly from headaches, and he constantly took castor oil as a remedy. He took it, I should say, almost to excess, and called it, I remember in his interesting way, the oil of sorrow. My father said it coloured for a time his whole attitude to life, his whole philosophy. But that was because he took it too much. What Lady Caroline wants is one dose and one only. It is a mistake to keep on taking castor oil. Do you know the Italian for it? 
asked Mrs. Arbuthnot. Ah, that I'm afraid I don't. However, she would know. You can ask her. She hasn't got a headache, repeated Mrs. Wilkins, who was struggling with the macaroni. She only wants to be left alone. They both looked at her. The word shovel crossed Mrs. Fisher's mind in connection with Mrs. Wilkins's actions at that moment. Then why should she say she has? asked Mrs. Arbuthnot. Because she's still trying to be polite. Soon she won't try. When the place has got more into her, she'll really be it. Without trying. Naturally. Lottie, you see, explained Mrs. Arbuthnot, smiling to Mrs. Fisher, who sat waiting with a stony patience for her next course, delayed because Mrs. Wilkins would go on trying to eat the macaroni, which must be less worth eating than ever now it was cold. Lottie, you see, has a theory about this place. But Mrs. Fisher had no wish to hear any theory of Mrs. Wilkins's. I'm sure I don't know, she interrupted, looking severely at Mrs. Wilkins. Why you should assume Lady Caroline is not telling the truth. I don't assume. I know, said Mrs. Wilkins. And pray, how do you know? asked Mrs. Fisher icily, for Mrs. Wilkins was actually helping herself to more macaroni, offered her officiously and unnecessarily a second time by Francesca. When I was out there just now, I saw inside her. Well, Mrs. Fisher wasn't going to say anything to that. She wasn't going to trouble to reply to downright idiocy. Instead, she sharply rapped the little table gong by her side, though there was Francesca standing at the sideboard, and said, for she would wait no longer for her next cause, Serve me. And Francesca, it must have been willful, offered her the macaroni again.